In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from, from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of El- Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwells. And my lord Joab and the servants and my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it it by hand to Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw him Draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why do you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerashabeth? Did not I? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter please you, for the word the sword devours now and now another now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, had died, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Around our city and around uh, Texas, many, many people um, see the Bible in a particular way. They see the Bible as a collection of inspirational religious stories that teach us good lessons. They teach us how to live in the world. Some of you might think that that's really kind of fundamentally what the Bible is. If you grew up around the church, that might very well be the way you would describe it to someone. And I'm here this morning to just lovingly tell you that that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, The Bible is not some sentimental tract that you put on your coffee table next to Chicken Soup for the Soul, right? And next to a Mitch album book. Um, In fact, the Bible is utterly untouched by sentimentality. And uh, it's full of all kinds of unedifying, R-rated tales of all kinds of crime and villainy. (laughs) And um, that's what this story today is like. It's one of those stories that makes us ask, why is this in the Bible? What are we doing talking about a story like this today? What is the purpose of God in a chapter like 2 Samuel 11? Here's the purpose, one of them anyway, is that God is, through stories like this, showing us what our world is like. And maybe a bit more provocatively, God's showing us what every single one of our hearts are like because of sin, because of our rebellion against him. What the Bible does, among other things, is stare unblinkingly into the face of sin. The Bible rightly understands the gravity of sin, which is the great problem of our world. It's the great problem of each one of our lives. William Golding has a a, a well-known novel from the 20th century that some of you probably read in high school called The Lord of the Flies. And that book illustrates the gravity of sin. Uh, The story's about boys that are marooned on an island, and some of the boys, as they develop sort of a a society, are convinced that there is a beast, like the show Lost. Do you remember Lost? It's kind of like that. They remember, they think there's a beast out in the the jungle on the island that's going to get them. The beast, however, is, is imaginary. And as the novel progresses, it becomes clear that the problem is not something outside of the boys, like a monster in the forest. The problem is the boys themselves. The problem is what's inside of them. And as the story unfolds, they fight and they devour one another to the very end. It's really a pretty dark book. You're welcome. You know, you're already tired from daylight savings time, so why don't we talk about Lord of the Flies for a while? 
Um, the, the denouement of the story, though, comes in the form of this oracle. And um, a, a, an appearance, a ghost appears and says at the very end to the boys this. Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt and kill. You knew, didn't you? I'm a part of you. This is a story about David's fall. And it's a very important story because it reminds us uh, what all of us are capable of. Like the beast says, I am a part of you. So sin is a part of us. Even if you're here and you're a Christian, even if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, sin is a part of us. This is a story that asks us to look directly at the gravity of sin and not to stay there, but to go to Jesus Christ for rescue. David, as we've been seeing, is, he's, he's at the high point of his reign as king of Israel. He's received unconditional covenant promises from God. He's shown amazing faithfulness and kindness to Mephibosheth. We saw that last week. And he's defeated Israel's enemies. But the events of this chapter set the course for the rest of David's life. This story chronicles David's great sin and failure and his great need for repentance and forgiving grace. It presents us, I think, this story with an anatomy of sin. It's an anatomy of sin. And the Holy Spirit, this morning can use this story in our lives by pointing us to the reality of our own hearts. Our hearts are darkened by sin, just like David's was. And if you read this story, if you hear me preach on it, if you heard Lena read it, and you think, I could never do something like that. If that's what you think, you've already taken one huge step towards the exact sort of evil that David commits here. No, we are all captured by sin. We're all in need of the rescue that Jesus alone provides. So what I want to do is look at five things, five things that sin is and that sin does through this chapter, and then look to Jesus with you for healing and for mercy and anatomy of sin. Let's look. First, sin misuses sex and power. Sin misuses sex and power. That's the most obvious lesson from the story, isn't it? The first five verses of the chapter, they portray for us what happens. It's already bad in verse 1. All the men go out to battle, but David, the leader, the king, stays behind in the city. And he's hanging out on his roof, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And, and the author tells us that David notices that she's beautiful. And then look at how the author words uh, the narrative. Very short Direct words. David sent. David took. She came and he lay. It's short. It's brutal. And it describes the prime instigator and actor as David. The point is that David is using his power as king. And he's using his power inappropriately. Just last week couple of chapters before this one, we saw that David used his power for mercy towards Mephibosheth. But here, it's the exact opposite. He abuses his power. And of course, he abuses sex, too. Look at what happens when he's asked who she was. David was told, isn't that Bathsheba? The wife, the wife of Uriah, 
the Hittite. By the way, David almost certainly knew who Bathsheba was. Um, Uriah, we learn elsewhere in 2 Samuel, was one of his closest confidants and one of the key generals in his army. And Eliam, Bathsheba's dad, is the son of this guy named Ahithophel, who's one of David's closest advisors. So basically, Bathsheba is the wife of one of David's generals and the granddaughter of one of David's cabinet members. He knows her and he knows she's off limits. Quick side note here. Um, I've heard arguments, I even saw some this week in preparing for this, that Bathsheba is as culpable here as David. No, that is absolutely not the case. I remember hearing a sermon on this story years ago when I was a high school student by our youth pastor. One reason we don't let youth pastors preach very often, right? And uh, he said, uh, (laughs) sorry, Jonathan. He said, um, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing up on the roof. And I'm like, well, that's, she's not on the roof. Read the text. David's on the roof. Bathsheba's in her home bathing. And the only reason that David can see her is because he's the king and he lives in a palace and he's out on this massive veranda and porch that looks out over the whole city. We don't know exactly because the text doesn't tell us how much consent, if any, Bathsheba gave. But what we do know for sure is that the power dynamic in the relationship between David and Bathsheba is not symmetrical. It's weighed heavily in David's favor. And we also know for sure that the author of 2 Samuel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it very clear that David instigated the entire thing. The point the author wants us to take is this. In our sin, we take gifts that God intends for our flourishing and for the flourishing of our neighbor. Things like power and sex, two of the most powerful of God's gifts. And instead of using those gifts with their divinely ordained purposes to give life, we use them to take life. Instead of using those gifts for love, we use them for abuse. We use them selfishly and not selflessly as they were intended to be used by God. And the Holy Spirit wants us to consider our own lives through this story. Don't read about David. And stand over and above him. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And even he falls prey to misusing power and to misusing sex. If you, men specifically, were in David's position with David's power and were presented with the same opportunity, do you think that it's possible that you might fall in the same way? If you answer the question no then you've started off on the wrong path. Sin can wind its way deep into every single one of us, male or female, through these two critical sources, power, sex. Second, sin breeds deception. It would have been bad enough, right? It would have been bad enough for David to commit adultery with Bathsheba. He knows he's crossing a line. He knows she's off limits, but sin wants what it cannot have. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, the lust of the eyes, as John puts it in 1 John, sees something beautiful but forbidden and cannot resist it. 
And David, he probably believes this dalliance with Bathsheba is going to be forgotten. It'll get swept under the rug until you get to verse 5. He gets a message from Bathsheba that says, I am pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. Now here, David is faced with an opportunity. He's faced with an opportunity. He can repent. He could say, Uriah, I'm at your mercy. I've made a great mistake. Please forgive me. Here's what, I'm so sorry. Would that have been humiliating? Yeah. Would that have been difficult? Yeah. Would that have been wise? Yeah. But David chooses otherwise. He attempts to deceive. Because sin breeds deception. Sin tries to cover up. So David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant and he sends for Uriah. And he institutes plan A. Here's plan A. David to have Uriah spend a few days at home, off the battlefield, and be with his wife so that a reasonable case could be made that the child she's having is Uriah's and not David's. But Uriah, by the way, the Hittite, meaning he's a Gentile, converted into God's covenant people, is ironically the most faithful Israelite in this entire story. And Uriah will not go home. He will not sleep in his bed. He will not lay with his wife. He will not eat home-cooked meals because he wants to be loyal. Look at what he says in verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? David's got to be thinking, come on, Uriah, just go home. So he moves to plan B. Add a little alcohol to the mix. Always a bad idea. And uh, that's what happens though. Verse 12, verse 13. He has Uriah around for about three days. He throws a party for him. He gives him great food from the king's table. He gets him drunk with wine. All in the name of honoring and caring for his friend and fellow soldier. But not really. He's weaving a web of deceit. He's trying to cover his tracks, isn't he? And it still doesn't work. Plan A fails. Plan B fails. Uriah won't go home. In our foolishness, we think that the only possible response to our sin is to hide it. We think the only possible response to our sin is to hide it, to cover it up. To make sure no one finds out. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Remember that first story. They hide from God behind a bush as if he's not going to see them. Are you doing this? Is there sin? You're attempting to cover up. Are there things you're hiding? Are you right now trapped in a web of deceit of your own making and getting to the point where there are so many lies you've told and so many tracks you have to cover over that you're confused and you're wondering if you're going to make a mistake and someone's going to find out. That's what sin will do. It will trick you into thinking you can engineer your way out of consequences, that you can engineer your way out of guilt. Listen to me, my friends. Our efforts to cover sin move us in exactly the wrong direction. 
Listen to me, beloved. We think that the safe way out of sin is to make sure we are never found out. But being found out is the only safe way out of sin. The only way to healing, the only way to safety, the only way to renewal and redemption is to be found out. Listen, you can get out. You can get out of the web right now through acknowledging your sin, through repentance, through trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will receive you. He will. There's nothing that you have done. There's nothing that you could ever do. There's nothing that you're hiding. There's nothing that you could ever hide that if you confess it, it won't be washed away by Christ. Don't continue to deceive. Come into the light. Come clean before it's too late. Sin breeds deception. Third, sin multiplies into more sin like rabbits. Sin multiplies into more sin. This is closely tied to the prior point. Sin leads to deceit and lies, but it leads to more and more sin. Danger, danger, danger. Sin is cancerous. Sin is malignant. It spreads. Look what happens. David has to up the ante. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as we heard, that's what ends up happening. Uriah dies in battle and Joab sends word through a messenger to inform David, hey, the deed is done. And now... Look in 19 through 21. Notice how how Joab instructs the messenger. He's basically saying, hey, when David gets mad at you because of the stupid, stupid tactical decision we made by fighting so close to the wall and losing multiple soldiers, just tell him, hey, Uriah's dead. And then look at David's response, verse 25. Thus you shall say to Joab, when the messengers told him this, he says, don't let the matter trouble you for the sword devours one now and... Another at a later time. Man, that's chilling. That is cold-blooded. This is the guy that said, find me a son of Saul that I may show kindness to him. Here he's saying, all's fair in love and war. Sometimes good guys just go down. There's going to be casualties in any battle. We've got to learn to live with it. You see how sin's multiplying? His adultery has led to deceit. His deceit has led to murder. His murder leads to callousness. This is terrible. This is really bad. Really bad. It's a cocktail of ruthless, calculating, commandment breaking. He's, breaking, he's broken half the Ten Commandments in like 25 verses. All of them. All, he's probably, he has, he's broken all of them in 25 verses. He goes from looking at Bathsheba and noticing that she's beautiful, nothing wrong with that, that is not wrong, to breaking the Ten Commandments in the span of one chapter because sin multiplies. One more just crucial pastoral word for you in this by, by way of application. Seemingly small patterns of rebellion have long trajectories in our lives unless we interrupt those patterns with repentance. Lots of us, lots of us are tolerating small patterns of sin because 
honestly, we don't think that they're going to have any earth-shattering consequences. But we fail to see the trajectories they lead us down. Kids, students, listen. When you lie to your parents and you get away with it, can get away with it, sadly. It's easy to think that this is an acceptable risk to take. That this is a sin you can manage. The evil one wants to blind you to the reality that lies lead to alienation. Your lies do not lead to more freedom. They lead to less freedom. They lead to a more damaged relationship. They can get you into a really bad spot really quickly. Men, when you look at pornography, not even hard stuff, just an inappropriate scene in a movie, just a a website with scantily clad women, and no one finds out about it, it's easy to think that you can manage it and control it. But it's a proven scientific fact, by the way, that our brains are hardwired for those images to satisfy us less and less the more we look at them. Just like building up your tolerance for particular substances. That's exactly what you're doing in a very negative way when you're looking at pornography. And eventually you want to see more, you want to look at more, and more often it's the way of addiction. And it will destroy you. It's true of all sin. Gossip leads to slander, which leads to hatred, which leads to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, murder. An unwillingness to address an issue with a friend leads to bitterness, which leads to malice, which leads to marriages ending. Sin multiplies malignantly. Jesus is so kind to show us this. He's giving us an anatomy of sin to gently and lovingly call us back to him in repentance and in faith. And he has given us his Holy Spirit who has empowered us to stop the downward spiral through trust in the gospel. You can change. You can change because Jesus Christ has freed you. And he's given you all that you need for life and godliness. Don't let sin multiply. Acknowledge it. Turn away from it. Look to Jesus in it. And if you aren't sure how to do that, talk to someone who has spiritual authority over you and ask them for help. Fourth, two more quickly, okay? Sin is foolish. Sin's stupid. Proverbs 24.9 says, The devising of folly is sin. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. David thinks he's wise in his own eyes here. And in attempting to deceive and scheme his way out of his sin, he really acts stupid. And David's a brilliant guy, a brilliant tactician, a brilliant musician, a brilliant leader, but he makes some dumb choices here. Think about it. For one, I mean, it's very likely that people knew what had happened. I mean, David sends, he asks someone who that person is, for one. And the guy's like, hey, um, she's married. Hands off, bro. And, And people knew Uriah was gone. And at least someone else knew that Bathsheba was pregnant. She sent a messenger to tell David people can deduce that two plus two equals four. But David tries to cover it up. He tries to play dumb. 
In fact, I think it's very likely that Uriah himself has some inkling of what's going on. He's got to be thinking, why would David send me home? Of all the field marshals out there on, uh, on the warpath, he randomly calls me home just to, just to talk, just to how see things are going out in the field. Why me? Why not Joab? Why does he want me to go home uh, and get some downtime as opposed to someone else? David's really dumb. Also, his plan with Joab, it's so stupid. What does David hope to gain in killing Uriah? He sends, he sends Uriah's death warrant with Uriah. Did you catch that? Which would strike any normal person as more than a little risky, <laughs> especially if Uriah had some inkling of David's adultery. I think he did. Might he consider, hey, maybe Uriah's going to open the letter and find out what he's carrying. Either David hasn't thought of that possibility, which is really foolish, or he has thought of that possibility and has dismissed it, which is also really foolish. Then there's Joab, who's in on the whole murder plot. He has to alter David's plan. Did you catch that? To make it less obvious. David says, just go out in the field, have everyone pull back except your eye. Your eye's like, chart, where's everybody? Boom, dead. Joab's like, that's not going to work. Way too obvious. So he sends these guys really close to a battle wall, and multiple people die. The casualties of war. It's collateral damage. And, and David doesn't even... Think about it. Joab massages the man and makes the stunt seem less intentional. The point is this. Sin causes us to act really, really, really foolishly. Trying to hide and conceal makes us panic. It makes us rash. Listen, if you're a leader, if you're a leader in any capacity, if you've been given any level of responsibility and you're living in unrepentant sin, you are working against yourself. You're working against your own leadership. You might not believe it, but you're on the path to foolishness, which only leads to one place, death and darkness. This text wants to push us back on the path of wisdom and humility, which leads to life and light. All right, last thing. Fifth thing, sin causes shame and guilt. Imagine the shame and anguish in Bathsheba's life. Thought about that? After Uriah dies, we read at the very end, David takes her as his wife. And without question, there's not a doubt in my mind that he is implicitly, again, using his power to tell her, don't you ever say a word about this to anyone. Imagine how that would have festered inside of her, the shame she would have carried. It's the same for Joab, by the way. His heart can only grow more hardened because of the shameful secrets he carries for David. And it's, of course, most of all true for David. Some of us know that burden. The burden of carrying our shame and our secrets around and having to bury it deep inside our hearts for fear of being discovered. That ruins people every day. It's ruined some of you, perhaps. It destroys our health. It takes our peace. It robs our joy. It's toxic. Toxic. Sin brings shame. And it also brings guilt. Last verse. And the only time he's mentioned in the entire chapter. It displeased the Lord. It displeased Yahweh. God sees what is happening here. David might have gotten away with it. But God sees. God knows. And God, we read, is displeased because sin ruptures 
fellowship with God and therefore renders us all guilty. By his grace, God is going to send Nathan, we'll look next week, to lovingly confront David and give him a chance at restoration. But what do we do with this story? Maybe God is doing that for you today. He's sending you a Nathan to confront you with your own sin. I'm not trying to say that's me. That's the Holy Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you've taken your sin too lightly. Maybe you're ready to come out of hiding. Maybe you're ready to stop carrying around the shame and the guilt of your failures. If you call yourself a Christian and you're unwilling to do that, you don't understand the gospel. Maybe you think you can continue to deceive everyone around you, but God sees God knows, and that's what matters. So what are we to do? Come to Jesus Christ, who loves to receive not righteous people. There's never been a righteous person Jesus has received. A lot of self-righteous people, never a righteous person. Jesus loves to receive sinners. Free up your hearts. Free up your life through belief in the gospel. It's never too late to turn away. It's never too late to repent. It's never too late to come out of the darkness into the light. Jesus is here for you. He's ready to show you love. There's a beast inside all of us. We cannot deal with it. We cannot control it. We can only take it to Jesus to be slain. Let's do that. Let's pray.